Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. You're listening to Puma Podcast. Hey, I'm Rafe Bartholomew. Welcome to the Global Bounce. Number eight, that's Lewis. Side court throw-in. Four seconds to go. Call Jacobs. Victoria long pass. Intercepted by Lewis. Lewis goes into the front court. One second to go. Take it. One go. We have won. Believe it or not. San Miguel Beer of the Philippines has beaten the mighty United States 108 to 100 in extra time. It was a glorious game of basketball. A moment. A moment to cherish. A moment to cherish. Do you know what you just listened to? 15 years ago, when I was living in Manila and researching what would become my book on Philippine basketball, I would have compared finding that clip to discovering the Holy Grail. July 15th, 1985, the championship game of the William Jones Cup, an annual tournament held in Taiwan that national teams throughout Asia like to use as a kind of dress rehearsal before diving into major international competitions. And that year, in those final seconds of the game you just heard, produced one of the most historic victories in the last half century of Philippine basketball. A win over Team USA. Not THE Team USA, the senior men's national team, but still, a selection of U.S. college stars with future NBA players on the roster representing USA basketball. That's why the late Ronnie Nathaniels, the sportscaster whose voice you heard in those final seconds, sounded like he was witnessing a miracle. For all intents and purposes, the Philippine national team beating any Team USA was an act of divine intervention. And back in the mid-2000s, I had no way to watch this hoops miracle. Back then, when I was interviewing players and coaches and fans about their most cherished basketball memories, the 1985 Jones Cup Final took on an almost mythical quality. It was the game that meant so much to so many people that I couldn't find online or in the stacks of hoops replay DVDs I rifled through in every market I could find in Metro Manila. I heard rumors of VHS copies in players' private collections, but I just about gave up any hope of seeing the proudest Philippine basketball moment in my lifetime with my own eyes. So what did I do? I learned about the game the old school way. I read everything I could about it in library archives, newspaper and magazine accounts about the American team, which wasn't quite the caliber of Team USA the country would send to an Olympics or World Cup, but was coached by future Hall of Famer Gene Cady and led by future NBA players Joe Wolf, Harold Presley, Kenny Gadamore, and Kevin Henderson. Bonus points if you could name a team that any of them played on. I read about the Philippine team, one of the earliest in world basketball to field naturalized players like former U.S. college stars Dennis Still, Jeff Moore, and Chip Englund, 
who became naturalized Filipino citizens to play alongside legendary Filipino players like Samboy Lim, Alan Kaidik, Ives Dignadise, and Franz Pumaren. I interviewed Ronnie Nathaniels about how it felt to call the win from courtside. I spoke to fans who kept posters of Samboy soaring for a layup between American defenders, still hanging in their bedrooms a full 20 years later. I tracked down Chip England, who'd gone on to become a renowned shooting coach in the NBA, and listened to him recount one of the best games of his career, 43 points in the upset win. I met Alan Kaidik, then the team manager for Barangay Hinebra in the Philippine Basketball Association, and listened to him recount every smooth left-handed jump shot he sank for his 19 points against the Americans. Kaidik even said he had a copy of the game somewhere. My heart fluttered at this, but it was on videotape and hard to watch now that everything else was on DVD. Remember, this is around 2006. But maybe, someday, he'd dig it up and get it digitized. And for more than a decade, it seemed like the story was going to end right there. I had learned about as much about the 85 Jones Cup final as I could. I'd formed a mental picture of Jeff Moore's clutch free throw that sent the game into overtime. Yes, he's at the line. I'd imagine Chip England, skinny as a noodle, heaving a desperate double-pump three-pointer on a key possession and watching it swish through the net on one of the hottest nights of his career. They gave it to Chip. Chip top of the key. He can't shoot. Page away. Outside to Dignity. Back to Chip. Three seconds. He fires. A long one. I'd envision Samboy the Skywalker and Kaidik the Trigger Man pouring in 42 points against future NBA defenders. And most importantly, I'd listened to so many stories from fans and friends in the Philippines about where they were and how they felt watching their countrymen defeat the United States that I convinced myself I understood something about the pride that Filipinos took in that moment. Then I did what writers do. I tried my best to describe the game and its importance in a couple of paragraphs in Pacific Rims. The book was published, and that was that. I always kept a dream of one day seeing the 1985 Jones Cup final, but I filed that dream away with all the others I knew would probably never come true. And then, in the year 2021, all of a sudden, <laughs> there it was. During the height of COVID-19 lockdowns and restrictions across the world, Alan Kaidik, one of the heroes of that game, had started a YouTube account to help himself and others pass the time. Hello everyone, this is the Triggerman Alan Kaidik. And welcome to my official YouTube channel. Ginawa ko itong YouTube channel para ma-share ko sa inyo ang aking mga memorable games, shooting tips, latest updates, at marami pang iba. I'm sure mag-enjoy kayong lahat. So please don't forget to like and subscribe. The Jones Cup game was his second upload ever. More than a decade after we sat together in Quezon City, and Boss Allen told me he hoped to someday find his VHS copy and transfer it to disc. He'd finally gotten it done. I should have known the trigger man always comes through. 
and now he'd put it on YouTube for the entire world to see. The game footage that I had once considered my hoop's holy grail was now a five-second YouTube search away from anyone with a smartphone and an internet connection. And that little parable sets the stage for this episode of The Global Bounce, brought to you by Puma Podcast. Today, we're talking to basketball media figures from the Philippines to the United States and back about how technology has changed the way they cover the game and the way the public consumes and understands the sport over the course of their basketball-loving lives and careers. I'm your host, Rafe Bartholomew. Hello, everybody. I'm Seb Sarmenta. I'm a sports broadcaster in the Philippines. I'm a also a teacher at the Ateneo uh, Department of Communication during the day. My connection with Rafe Bartholomew is simple. It's basketball and his love for the game, both here and everywhere in the world, but probably more especially in the Philippines. The connection is simple, but it's even deeper than that. Sir Sev, as generations of college students still call him, agreed to be my advisor for the Fulbright research that first brought me to the Philippines in 2005. If he hadn't seen the cold email I sent to his Ateneo de Manila University address, my life probably would have turned out in some completely different way that I have a hard time even imagining. In a sense, when I first arrived in Manila, with all of my family back in New York, Sev was the only person I knew. I think our view of what Pacific Rims would look like, we had no idea what it would look like back then. Mm -hmm. There were several turning points. When you wrote that email, it was actually passed on to me by the chair at that time. And she said, there's this American who's looking for somebody to endorse him. And it seems that your name keeps coming up because I was both in the academy and sports. And then I endorsed you, wrote that letter, I think, and then you came Mm -hmm. over. We met at Paco Bell. I opened a few doors. You played basketball endlessly here. But I think the turning point rate was when you made the presentation to the Fulbright branch here in the Philippines. That's an unforgettable day because there was a storm that day. The roofs <laughs> in Makati were flying. The things you do for Rafe Bartolomeo, I mean, really. Seven I could reminisce about that fateful morning all day the desperate dash to get home safely afterward, the winds of Typhoon Milenio bringing down billboards along the highway, the powerless mall where I sheltered with other stranded commuters before walking home through eerie calm on roads strewn with wreckage. But, dear listener, your time is more valuable than that. In addition to everything Sev has done for me personally, he's also one of the leading authorities on Philippine basketball and sports media, which he's known as a professor and a practitioner ever since he started calling games on the radio in the 1980s. And Sev took me back even before then, recalling how fans in the Philippines consumed basketball games during his 1960s childhood. There was no cable back then. What you listened to, and I'm saying it out loud, listened to was actually a radio coverage of an international game where the Philippines was playing. Like in 1967, I listened with my father to the Philippines against Korea championship game in the ABC. And uh, we were cheering like crazy because the Philippines won it in Korea in the last couple of minutes with Danny Florencio scoring the last four points, although he never played in the entire game. But there was the Mika. Uh, The Mika was on television even as early as the 50s. There was a splattering of uh, UAAP, NCAA coverages, but they were not consistent 
on the air. That was until 1975 when the PBA came around and uh, consumption was all television and radio and print. The PBA was on television three times a week. It was there for uh, with the radio coverage and print coverage almost every day. So the consumption in a pre-internet era was basically uh, through traditional media. You listen to the radio, you watch the game on television back then, you could not express your sentiments on any <laughs> platform, except if you were uh, patient enough to write a letter to the editor of Sports World, some sports magazine, some newspaper, although they probably didn't have space for it. But the best way to talk about the game was the next day on the basketball court. I grew up in a place in Santa Cruz, Manila, uh, and we talked about the game, what happened the night before, before we played our tatluan or our three-on-three or our full-court basketball game or when you went to school and everybody in the cafeteria was talking about the game. Nowadays, there isn't much conversation about the games that you saw because, one, you watch it different times. There was no one airing time. Everybody has probably made a comment already on Twitter or on some format about the referee being like this or the player being uh, so awful. Everything is in the moment nowadays. Uh, the memory of the game does not last more than probably one day nowadays. When you have great games, like if when the Philippines was doing so well in the international competition, uh, what lingered were the magical moments, like in 1973 when that team won uh, the last uh, ABC uh, that was held here. And uh, that was before uh, the Phil Ams came over. And um, everybody was talking about that game long after it ended. And uh, by the same token, people talked about the miseries and the awful teams, uh, the way Korea killed the Philippines in 1969 or Japan killed us in 1971. These are memories that uh, last over a week because the editors of the newspapers would also keep talking about it, keep writing about it, lambasting the system of selection of players, the way it was selected, the way it was trained, uh, and all those the usual things that happen when the national team doesn't do well. In the era before cable TV and high-speed internet, basketball's global bounce, see what I did there? didn't travel quite as far. Sev and other Filipino hoops lovers back then knew about the NBA, its history as the world's first pro league, and home to the game's early greats like George Mikan, Bob Pettit, Wilt Chamberlain, and Bill Russell, but they rarely saw the on-court product. First time I saw the NBA in the Philippines was in 1969. It was a two-week delay of the Celtics against the Lakers that last year that Bill Russell played. And then there were frequent games during the week on a very, very delayed basis. Then Kinito Henson suddenly had that NBA on GMA thing that was a weekly... Kinito, uh, the dean, Henson, is a sports commentator, and GMA is one of the most popular channels on Philippine TV. But the way most people did it before the explosion of cable television was to get access to the Air Force uh, wavelength, which you know about, which you wrote about in your book, of course. Uh, people like Tim Cohn would uh, watch those games in the hazy signal. We'd wake up early in the morning uh, to watch these games. Uh, there was access to that. Until later on, there was some more regular via satellite presentations of up-to-date NBA games. Nowadays, a devoted basketball fan in Manila 
say, a girl or boy who wants to follow the NBA, college and pro hoops in the Philippines, and the ups and downs of the national team, is basically drowning in live basketball games and content about the sport on TV and social media. To actually follow everything of interest, you would need to watch the NBA, which broadcasts live on Philippine television several mornings per week during the season, PBA doubleheaders three or four times per week on TV or streaming, two separate collegiate leagues featuring the country's top teams and players, FIBA qualifying matches and pocket tournaments for the national team that bubble up every few months, and a smattering of weekly games in the Japan B-League, Korean Basketball League, and Taiwan's T1 League to keep track of the young Pinoys starring in overseas leagues. And that's to say nothing of other sports you might watch, Netflix, online gaming, live streams on Twitch or its Philippine-based sister, Kumu, and hey, maybe some folks out there still like to eat or sleep or step outside and touch grass, as they say. Technology and the internet age have made the slate of options for basketball fans essentially infinite. That goes for fans of anything, but we're talking basketball here. In terms of access, it's a golden age. But how does Sev see it affecting the way people consume and interact with the sport? The big difference between watching then and watching now is the highlight reel. Nowadays, people will just watch the highlight reel and say that they watch the entire game. In the olden days, 60s and 70s, you watch the whole game from first quarter until end. Nowadays, you can just say, oh, I'll just go to the NBA highlights and uh, watch it there. Nowadays, even the PBA has a highlight reel uh, of all the dunks and the slams and our voices are going crazy there all the time. I think the watching then was a little more concentrated and the airtime, there were no replays of full games. You had to watch the game live. Our barcada, our group of friends in Santa Cruz, Manila, we would uh, get a case of San Miguel beer and watch the Chris Patoyota game uh, together uh, and endlessly tell stories about it with another case of beer thereafter. Mm -hmm. So there was a lot of communal watching. There's a lot of that still nowadays. But I think the watching is more private, more personal. Mm -hmm. Like right now, if you wanted to watch the highlights of, a, of an NBA game, we could easily do that. But now I think, to be fair, the younger people are more conversant about the NBA. They can mention all the 30 teams. They can mention who has been traded just because of the internet. Over the course of my lifetime, one of the most significant trends in overall sports culture has been the increasing role of women in sports media and greater attention on women's sports. Jackie McMullen, a trailblazing reporter who began her Hall of Fame journalism career at the Boston Globe in the 1980s, told me how it felt to be part of the push for gender equality in sports media. So my senior year, I was graduating and uh, the Globe, Boston Globe, had this great deal with the University of New Hampshire, one guaranteed slot per semester for a UNH student. I mean, it was a pretty big deal. So every summer, a UNH student was guaranteed a slot in the Globe Summer Internship, which was a very coveted thing. But they didn't take graduates and they, they didn't want graduating seniors for obvious reasons. They didn't want you bugging them for a job. So I was a senior and I hadn't gotten to that internship. I had the spot, but I was a graduating senior. So my professor, Andy Merton, said to me, well, let's just defer your graduation. I said, well, do you think that'll work? He said, 
why not? We're just, you're going to graduate in December of 1982 instead of May of 1982. So we deferred my graduation and I went to the Globe in the news department, not the sports department, because it was a guaranteed news spot. And I used to just, I worked the lobster shift seven to three. And then I just stay there all day. I just hang around the sports department and met uh, one of the best friends of my life, Ian Thompson, who I'm sure you're familiar with. Great, great journalist. Worked at the Globe and Sports Illustrated and the International Herald Tribune. And he was the sports intern. And he was so far advanced. Uh, he was so much better than I. He knew stuff. I didn't know anything. So I learned a lot from Ian. And I just hung around the sports department. And by the end of the summer, everybody knew I wasn't an undergrad. <laughs> and uh, I just took a deep breath. And I went into Vince Doria's office, who was the sports editor at that time, and said, I'm young. I'm cheap. I'm a girl, woman. Um, I really want to work here. And he said, all right, well, I'll think about it. And then he had, he had me start stringing. I was covering college football for them, local college football. And then I got a job offer from the Orlando Sentinel. And I went right from the airport to the Globe and said, I need an answer because I have this job now. And of course, I didn't want to go to Orlando. Are you kidding me? I wanted to work for the Globe. So he hired me. I still don't know why. I really don't. I had field hockey clips, you know, <laughs> I didn't have a lot of stuff. I asked Jackie how it felt to take over the Globe's Boston Celtics beat from another legendary NBA reporter, Bob Ryan. Right. Well, it was pretty terrifying because Bob Ryan was the dean of, you know, his nickname was the commish for crying out loud. But he was so great to me. And then Will McDonough, who was one of the massive power brokers in all of our of our industry, like He's the reason all sports people are on TV, Will McDonough, because he was so good and broke so many stories, they had to put him on TV. And he's the reason all the rest of us came aboard. And so those were two great mentors to have. And, you know, they had a habit of going around and saying, she's okay. You know, they started, you know, Will McDonough said to Red Arbeck, she's okay, you know. But I think the, the reason I was able to make my way is I had a great connection with the black NBA athletes that were in the league. And I found myself in situations where black athletes in particular gave me a little more leeway and a little better chance than some of the white athletes. And I didn't know if I was making this up, if I were imagining this, but, you know, for instance, Charles Barkley, who wasn't even in the Boston market, obviously he was playing for the Sixers at the time I met him. He just, I would go up and ask him and he would talk with me. He'd sit down with me. And of course, we know now Charles is like that. He's very generous to everyone. But at that time of his career, he, he really wasn't necessarily that way. And I said to him once, why are you so good to me? Why do you give me these opportunities? And he said, I figure you're like me. Every time you walk into the room, you're the only one. And I got to know Robert Parrish very well. And Robert Parrish, for those who don't know, played for the Celtics for many years. He was uh, a tough interview for most. He really didn't open up to very many people. He didn't share very much of himself. He was great to me. He really was. And I think he helped me build credibility in that locker room because he, if he trusted me, then everyone else should too, because he didn't trust anyone. So, you know, I've, I've asked this a lot through the years because I think there was something to that. The idea of black athletes were used to being overlooked, used to being misjudged, um, underestimated, you know, and honestly, quite frankly, just discriminated against. 
And I think as very often the only woman, and I, you know, there were other women, great women covering the NBA when I did. Jeanette Howard is the one that always comes to mind for me. Um, but there were many others too. Um, I think they just could identify with me a little bit. Jackie told me she had no problem reporting on tough NBA coaches like Pat Riley and Greg Popovich, just as long as they were fair to her. And like only Jackie can do, she transformed her answer from a straightforward recollection of her experiences to an even more powerful story about universal themes like aging and compassion. I will say that with Riley in particular, Riley hated everything about Boston for obvious reasons, right? Lakers, Celtics. Um, he hated coming to Boston. His players were treated poorly there. It took me a very, very long time to earn Pat Riley's trust because he was, it kind of reminds me of the first time I met Spike Lee. Spike Lee knew my work and he had seen me for years. And I did a special with Charles Barkley and Spike Lee. And, uh, and Spike Lee came up to me and he said, it's nice to meet you. And then he hugged me and he whispered in my ear, I hate Boston. And I, I always used to say to Riley, can't you separate me from this city that I live in? I mean, I've worked for lots of places. I cover lots of teams. And uh, so anyway, the last time I saw Pat, which was actually in Boston, and I had just retired, but I had been invited back to a game by a friend. And I saw Pat in the hallway. And he said, I thought you retired. I said, I thought you did too. So I, I love seeing him. Um, you know, Greg Popovich, Pop, probably more than almost any coach. He never favored me, Rafe, but he gave me a fair chance. Mm -hmm. He gave me a chance to succeed or fail. And I was often the only woman. And you remember that. You know, you know who else did that for me? It was George Carl. George Carl mm -hmm. is a really tough dude. He can be very tough. And he used to quiz me in front of the other writers before the game. He'd ask me like a trivia question or something. I'm like, really, George? You know, but he was doing it, I think, in some ways to help me build my own credibility. So, um, you know, the one that called me kid all the way to the end was Red, Red Auerbach. Mm. He called wow. me kid all the way to the end. But, you know, I used to call Red at the end of his life because his wife had passed and, you know, he was ill and wasn't traveling anymore. And I used to call him pretending I was interviewing, but I really wasn't. I was really just calling wow. to chat with him because I really um, he was very, very good to me. And uh, I enjoyed talking with him. 2023 has been a banner year for women's hoops in the United States, with the Women's NCAA Tournament Final Four and Championship Game drawing record TV audiences, 
and the WNBA also breaking viewership records. But when I asked Jackie about this, her answer surprised me. For all she has done to create space for women in the basketball world, she wished she could have done even more. Well, if I have one regret, Rafe, it's that I did not cover the women's game, really, ever during my tenure in in my industry. Because when I worked at the Boston Globe, I knew the women's game pretty well. In fact, you know, when I went to the Globe, I was 21. I was four months out of just playing. And I knew a lot of the women and um, I knew who was good and who wasn't. In fact, I remember when very early years at the Globe, I, I said to Vince Doria, um, my, you know, my team UNH was playing in a tournament at Old Dominion. Mm. And I said to him, look, I'm just going to shamelessly admit, I just want to go see my old team play in this tournament. But while I'm there, there's a woman named Medina Dixon who plays for Old Dominion, who's from Boston, Massachusetts, who's one of the top players in the country. How about if I go do a story on her? It'll be great for our paper. But I'm not going to lie to you. I really want to go because I want to see my, you know, I was pretty transparent about it. And he said, go have a good time. And so when I went down there, I did a story on Medina, who was um, from an amazing family. Her brother, Zach Dixon, I think it was, played running back for the Seahawks. Brother Robin Dixon actually played at UNH and went on to be um, an athletic director in the New England area. They're really kind of an incredible family. But Medina was the best of them all. I mean, he, she was a world-class women's player. And I, so I did this story on her. And then while I was down there, it just so happened that Nancy Lieberman was at the game with Martina Navratilova. So I did a story on them. And, you know, I, you know, I had a little guilt. I made sure I, um, but, but back in those days, I used to call it my pro bono work. Anytime I wanted to do a story on the women's game, no one was assigning it to me. And I was usually volunteering to do it. My favorite thing to do when I was at the Globe was the, the girls high school state tournament. It was my favorite assignment because there were amazing stories. And the girls were incredible and they were playing at Boston Garden. So the WNBA, for the most part, didn't exist when I was young and covering my career. And so by the time it did exist, pretty entrenched, not just in the NBA, but in the NFL. I was covering Brady. You know, I was covering the Red Sox through all their World Series. And so, you know, I if I have one regret is that, that I didn't really, I don't think I did my part, honestly, to promote the women's game maybe the way I should have. Still, back in April, when the entire sports world was focused on Iowa's Caitlin Clark and her incredible NCAA tournament performance, which wound up shedding light on another star, LSU's Angel Reese, after the Tigers defeated Iowa in a national championship game watched by 9.9 million Americans. Jackie said it felt like the women's game had finally broken through. Yeah, it's incredible. I mean, and just Caitlin Clark, she's just, she's, she's Steph Curry, man, you know? Yeah, we're here. We're here. They're ready. And I I think so much of it has to do with, like, I look at my own husband, okay? You know, he grew up in a big Irish Catholic family. His sisters didn't play sports. All the boys did. And then we have this daughter who just is playing every sport known to man. You know, our daughter was really a very good high school athlete. She she played basketball in college at a very low level, D3, but she loved sports. It became a big part of our environment. She played on the AAU circuit, you know, every weekend we're all in. My husband was so into it. And I think there's a million people like my husband. There's a lot of girl dads out there. You know, the thing I always have said is, I don't know why it surprises men that women are just as competitive, that women talk smack, that women get jealous, that women throw balls at ref. I mean, we do everything, you know, and I'd like to think we'd learn from the men some of the mistakes they've made. But the fact of the matter is women are... Every bit is competitive in some cases, if not more. 
as men. So why does it surprise everyone that, you know, Caitlin Clark's talking a little smack that Angel Reese goes too far? I think we'd agree she went a little too far, in my opinion. Um, and that's that's OK. I mean, that it happens every day in the NBA. And so this is the world we live in. I, I don't you know, I, I'm, I prefer a little more respect. I feel that way about the men's game, too. But that's just because I'm old fashioned. Um, but I think the women's game, the, the talent level has is really unbelievable. It's just unbelievable. I mean, I got to watch Candace Parker play in her prime and she's still amazing. And people didn't understand. Diana Taurasi, you know, Caitlin Clark, they, you've never heard of trash talk. Did you not see Diana Taurasi? I mean, my God, the things, you know, you can't guard me. I mean, she was unbelievable. I feel bad a little bit for Diana and that, you know, on this wave, she, everyone, she'd be a household name and she, I guess she kind of is, but she, you know, she was otherworldly. And uh, I mean, Shamika Holdsclaw, how come people, everyone should know about Shamika Holdsclaw. She was one of the most incredible players I've ever seen. I'll leave someone out for sure. Lisa Leslie, let's, let's go on down the line. Um, but I'm just so glad that it's finally here and that these women are going to get their due. Back in Manila, women's hoops had a recent breakthrough of its own, with Slam Philippines publishing its premier issue of W Slam, a limited edition version of the magazine focusing solely on the women's game and featuring five members of the national team on its cover in May. Tessa Hasmines, a longtime professor at the University of the Philippines College of Mass Communication and the first female courtside reporter for the University Athletic Association of the Philippines, said it was about time. Basketball brands could no longer afford to overlook the women's game and the fans who follow it. And I think it's just reflecting the wave that is now going on in basketball because even Nike is emphasizing women in its sport, not just in basketball. It's open, it, like for instance, it introduced a, a new line of sportswear that previously did not exist. Like women had to adapt to the measurements and the cut of veil clothing. But now when they made Jordan uni uniforms, kits for the Ateneo women's, they had women's fit. And then they also introduced these uh, apparel that were are for pregnant women, more of a greater variety of bras. So women are really the emphasis now. And I don't think it's, a, it's just a single phenomenon that's rising up, but that it is all over and that people are recognizing the power of women and also recognizing that they are, should be given their own space and their own glory. And I think it's equality in action. Mm. Stepping out of the gender studies classroom and back into the media lab, Tessa described the unique challenge of training students for careers in media when the skills and expertise needed for media jobs seem to change with each new technological leap from the typewriter to the fax machine to the personal computer to the world wide web to social media to now artificial intelligence. You just have to adapt because that's what's in front of you. And if you don't use it, it's being so stubborn. So just teach yourself, ask others to teach you these new things because otherwise you can't move on because you don't have the tools anymore. The 
more you use them, the more you learn about them. And because everything is around you, that becomes your reality. So just adapt. Branding is very <laughs> rampant nowadays, and it's uh, it's the way to go. And I'm happy to say that a lot of my students have really joined mainstream sports journalism because it's not now all print. They have also diversified, so to speak. So besides their writing assignments, they have also opened up their own podcasts. They also have their own YouTube channels. And I think that makes their coverage three-dimensional because they can be enjoyed in or through different channels. And they can say so much more in this particular medium and they can say it a different way in another medium. So that makes the coverage more complete, I think. And, and it's true. It's the age. We're in the age of influencers. So even media have become influencers. Even in the, of course, in the NBA, we don't just read the stories. We look for the people who write the stories or who tweet the important news. I guess at the same time, is there any aspect of pre-internet sports huh. media that you remain a little bit nostalgic for? That you're like, oh, I, you know, I still miss it. <laughs> <laughs> the typewriter. <laughs> I still miss it. I miss, although your laptop can, the keys can go clickety-clack as well. It's different when you use a typewriter. I ain't going to lie. I'm a little bit nostalgic for a world where I could write a good article and believe somebody out there might actually read it, even if my brand isn't on point. But like Tessa advises, I'm going to try my best to survive with whatever new tools the universe throws at me. Oh, hey, that reminds me. Check me out on Threads. To learn more about a new generation of basketball content creators and how they see their role in the media landscape, I caught up with Ice Flores, the man behind the Philippines-focused YouTube channel Hoops Highlights. Ever since I was a kid, I always liked creating stuff, creating something out of nothing. So when I was like, in college, second year college, I wanted to make a highlight channel focused on the role players. Like, you know, down to back, down to back, the channel. I wanted to make a Filipino version of that, like a highlight channel focused on the role players. Like, I'll make a Jeremy King 30 points highlights. And after like three years, I realized that I wanted to say something more. I wanted to do something more. Ice told me he started the channel with the goal of succeeding according to YouTube standard metrics. Views, subscribers, engagement, likes, you know, the attention economy. Much like the name of his channel suggests, he made videos that were pretty straightforward highlight reels, aggregating the best plays from a PBA or college game, and trying to package them with thumbnail screens and catchy titles that would attract clicks. But the fascinating thing about Ice's experience is that over time, he started to care less and less about competing in the attention economy, and instead, he started creating these long-form 25-minute basketball deep dives filled with precise breakdowns of offensive and defensive sets, playful voiceovers, and occasional surrealist touches inspired by SpongeBob SquarePants, among other things. Basically, he started making the kind of content he felt like watching. But for years, yeah, definitely. I purposely pick topics that I think will do well on certain time. Like, for example, next month, may see games. 
if I'm going to make a video around May, siguro April pa lang pinaplano ko na yung video ko for May na about Gilas so that when I upload it, meron traffic kasi may nag-uusap tungkol sa SEA Games. To sum it up, Ice says if he wants a video about the Gilas Pilipinas men's national team to come out in time for the Southeast Asian Games, he plans about a month ahead. But recently, honestly, don't care. <laughs> what topics am I going to do? Like, yung secret formula, uh, random siya. Like, I've already planned all of my videos for the year, pero rough, rough sketch pa lang siya. But yung secret formula talaga dumating siya. Like, mm, okay tong topic na to. So, I just did it. And I think it was fun. And yun lang yung importante para sa akin right now. So, Ice plans out his videos, but these aren't set in stone. He just goes with what gets his creative juices flowing. And that's what's important. Because last year, numbers-wise, it was great. <laughs> and even though mataas yung numbers, I wasn't the happiest with my content. So sabi ko, 2023, gagawin natin lahat ng gusto natin. So yeah, ano eh, mix siya of what you want and what people want. His latest, which is called The Commodification of Pinoy Pride, is a video essay questioning all the ways that traditional media and new media creators have sold hope to Filipino fans rooting for Kai Soto, the country's 21-year-old 7'3 big man who hopes to play his way onto an NBA roster. Ice's video is the exact opposite of the videos you can find all over the internet, declaring Soto a sure bet to land an NBA contract after his stint with the Orlando Magic Summer League team this July. Instead of a fast-paced supercut of every Kai dunk that tells us nothing about his chances to make the league, Ice's video is cultural commentary in video form. At si Kai Soto, he looked like someone who can definitely get drafted in the NBA. Being that tall while also being fundamentally sound was a great sight to see and everyone got hyped. And as the interest grew, it was a no-brainer for content creators to capitalize and make videos about Kai Soto. And as Kai Soto's basketball career went on, marami rin nagkaroon ng YouTube careers trying to cover Kai Soto's story. And that put a lot of pressure on Kai Soto's shoulders. Especially tayo, mga Pinoy fans. This kind of work takes time. Research, editing, writing, recording voiceovers. He drops one or two videos per month. When if he were trying to maximize his followers and views, he'd upload one or two a day. So his numbers don't look as impressive as a creator making short, simple highlight videos filled with topics for clickbait arguments. But who cares? Ice is doing what he wants. What inspires him? And in today's media landscape, That's the difference between what I would call an artist and what the world calls creators. Thank you for listening to episode three of The Global Bounce. Again, I'm Rafe Bartholomew. The Global Bounce is a Puma podcast production. This episode was produced by Nina Toralba and edited by Mark Casillan. Additional research by Geraldine Pascual with creative consults from Trisha Aquino and Carl Javier. The video snippets you heard are from Alan Kaidik Official and Hoops Highlights on YouTube. Maraming salamat po.